couple of weeks ago I was speaking with someone and we were talking about how hard it is to keep tools around the house where you want them to stay. Especially with children in the house, ten, things tend to kind of end up wherever they were last left and if you need a screwdriver or a wrench, unless you have a special place for those tools, it's hard to keep those tools together and you may not be able to find it when you need it. In our house, I have one particular place that I like to keep the flashlight. Right above the microwave, we have a cabinet and there are two shelves in that cabinet, so I open up the cabinet above the microwave and put the, the flashlight up there. And that is the sacred place that I know will always be the flashlight. But interesting enough, especially Sophia, and I can talk about her since she's not here in the sanctuary, she knows that there's something special about that flashlight. She wants to get Daddy's flashlight. So of all the places in the house, that is that one holy place, that one sacred place, where I try to keep at least the flashlight so I know where it is. We all need holy places in our lives. People need holy places. All throughout history, humans have sought out holy places to gather and do give, give, uh, give homage to the sacred in their lives. Stonehenge, Tibet, Machu Picchu, they think probably was a sacred place where rituals were performed. And one of the great shifts that is happening now is that no longer so much do people associate churches to be holy places. If people going down Iowa Avenue see our building at all, what it represents to them is not necessarily a holy or a sacred place, but perhaps just an institution. And nowadays, most things that are institutional are considered relics of a bygone era. Worst case scenario, people may look at church buildings as a place of hurt, a place of conflict and divisiveness, and even a place of judgment and condemnation. I'd like to frame this discussion today about holy places in the context of a whole trend in our society that has been called the spiritual but not religious. Perhaps you consider yourself as someone who is spiritual but not religious. You might think about yourself that way. You might have heard someone in your family or friends describe themselves as being spiritual but not religious, and I know that I've had my moments as well. And one of the hallmarks of the SBNRs, the spiritual but not religious people, is that they almost without exception will state that they are deeply spiritual people that they do not feel spiritual necessarily when they sit in a worship service as we are doing this morning. They will say something like this, I can see God in the sunset, but I don't feel connected to God when the preacher preaches like he is a know-it-all, or when the ushers pass the offering plate, or when church folk start arguing over the color of the carpet, or who we will allow to come in the building and eat with us. 
So at worst case scenario, you might say, well, these people are just giving an excuse not to come to church. But I think that we should listen carefully to what these people are saying because they have an opportunity to teach us a lot about faith and life because they are challenging us to live our lives authentically, not only before God, but before the world. So we would dismiss the spiritual but not religious at our own peril. But one of the questions that comes into play when you're thinking about the spiritual but not religious is about holy places. Is Facebook a sacred space? Is the sunset the only sacred place in your life? And then there are those who would suggest that the church building is the only legitimate sacred space. And if you don't go to church on Saturday night or on Sunday morning, then somehow God is going to forget about you. But what I would suggest, and maybe for us to contemplate about holy places this morning, is that holy places need to function in two ways in our lives. A holy place is first a place where you encounter the grace and the mercy and the holiness of God. But that holy place must also do something else for you as well. And this is the piece that most often gets neglected whether you come to church or not. The holy place, wherever it is, must also connect you with others. In the Bible, the holy places were most often associated with high places. That's where God lived, up on the mountains. But not always. Jacob encountered God on the plain at night. And for most of us, especially me growing up in church, that holy place in my life has often been the church building, where we sit in the sanctuary. This sanctuary has been dedicated to a, the sole purpose of connecting people to God and connecting us to each other. So that's our cross-shaped life, if you want to look at it that way. That we get connected to God and we also must connect with each other. So that is what a holy place must do for you. So if you're not doing that in church, if you're spiritual but not religious and you don't darken the door of the church building, what do you do if that holy place in your life is when you are out in nature all by yourself? Then what your sunset experience with God must do is prepare you and nurture you in such a way that then you can go back to your family or to your friends or to your work or to your community or wherever you find your community that holy place must help you connect with others. If your sunset experience, where you experience the divine, gracious majesty of God, if that sunset experience doesn't help you grow in love for your neighbor with the barking dog, or if the gardening experience that you do doesn't help you love your neighbor as yourself, then your spiritual but not religious experience is only doing half of what it needs to do. There's a nice phrase that I heard on Facebook, by the way, 
every one of us has a life to live that is right for us and is a light to others as well. So do you hear both of those? It works for us, but we have to be a light to others. In our story for today, we see how God provided the people of Israel and Judah with a holy place, a place called Jerusalem, a place called the city of David, and sometimes it's even called Zion. Jerusalem was a place, it was a high place where people could go and know that they would be in the presence of God, but they could also engage and learn with others about how to love and how to forgive and how to be in the community with each other. So in today's story, a little bit of background here, the elders of the northern tribes of Israel, they approach David and ask him to be their king. He has already been the king of Judah, which is the southern tribes, for a number of years. And now at this moment, all of the 12 tribes of Israel will finally be joined together under one king, under one ruler. It's similar to what happened during the formation of the United States. The 13 colonies joined together and they held a constitutional Congress and they elected a president. Finally, the 13 colonies were united, therefore we call them the United States. And that's how significant this moment is in the history of Israel. It's like finally that they have gotten to realize the promise that God gave to Abraham. It's like finally God had completed the work that was begun in Moses and the liberation from slavery in Egypt. Abraham, Moses, and now David are key figures in the Old Testament. And this moment marks the culmination of years of struggle, of fighting, and insecurity. But one thing was lacking. Despite all the progress and significance of this unified moment, there was one piece of the puzzle that was there that was lacking for the unified kingdom to be complete. And that was the kingdom needed a capital. So God gave the people Jerusalem. We take for granted that Jerusalem was always the capital, but it always hasn't been the case. Jerusalem was there, sure, but up until this point, it was a Canaanite city. So it didn't belong to the southern tribes, and it didn't belong to the northern tribes. It belonged to the Canaanites, or who what we may, we may now call the Palestinians. And way back in school, you might have learned that Washington, D.C. itself was a compromise between the northern colonies and the southern colonies. The people in the south and capitals like Williamsburg and Charleston, they didn't want their nation's capital to be in Philadelphia, up there with that old geezer Ben Franklin. So they had to engineer a city out of the swamps partially donated by the North, partially donated by the South. In fact, it came from the land owned by 
Robert E. Lee's family. So in similar fashion, David, as the new king of both the northern and the southern tribes, was shrewd enough to realize that in order for him to be king of both Israel in the north and Judah in the south, he needed a new place, a new capital. So he conquered Jerusalem. And it's not clear in the scriptures about actually how they did it, but somehow they were able to control the city's water supply. Or as most translations have it, they came into the city of Jerusalem through the water supply pipes. And so now we have it. For the first time, Jerusalem under Jewish control. Really a gift from God, and it becomes known as the city of David. And it's pretty easy for us to sit here drowsing off and to underestimate the power of this moment for the people of God. For it is here in Jerusalem that David will establish his realm. It is here in Jerusalem that David will return the Ark of the Covenant, and we'll do that next week. And the Ark of the Covenant represents the very presence of God. So now you come to Jerusalem and you know that you're in God's city. And it is here in Jerusalem later on that Solomon, David's son, using heavy taxation, will build a temple that is the holy place where God would come in and take up residence. You see, God entered the story and gave the people a place of historical and religious significance. And Jerusalem, as we all know, still looms large in the world today. For those of you who have visited there or read about it, you know that Jerusalem is a place of mystery. It's a place of wonder and awe because it represents so much more than just people and buildings and businesses. It's a place that we hardly can't describe because of what Jerusalem symbolizes for us, not only in our religion, but in Islam and in also in Jewish religion. So think about this. It's what we sang in Psalm 48 a few moments ago, how Jerusalem takes on some other type of reality. That when we talk about Jerusalem, they begin to talk about words like Jerusalem uh, and the city of David and even Zion. So Psalm 48, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king, within its citadels, God has shown himself a sure defense. So the people of Israel began to think about Jerusalem as Zion. And scholars are unsure about the origin of this name, Zion, but some believe that it is associated somehow with rock, a stronghold, a fortress. So, for example, Zion Lutheran Church is a church that hopes to convey in its very name that God is a refuge and a strength, 
a very present help in times of trouble, from Psalm 46. When William Blake, the mystical poet in the 17th century, wrote about his beloved England, he wrote about Jerusalem being on England's green and pleasant land. And we even have that in our hymnal to sing. And in the black tradition, the people sing songs about Jerusalem and Zion. Mahalia Jackson sang, Rockin' Jerusalem, here rock angels, rockin' in Jerusalem, here rock angels, ringin' them bells, here rock angels, rockin' in Jerusalem, here rock angels, ringin' them bells. Church getting higher, rockin' in Jerusalem, church getting higher, ringin' them bells. Church getting higher, rocking in Jerusalem. Church getting higher, ringing them bells. And even in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, John looked at the situations of the Christians who were back then being persecuted and killed as martyrs for their faith. And he looked up into the sky with a great vision, and he saw a new Jerusalem coming down a new sacred and holy place coming to redeem and reconcile and renew. You see, God brought David to be king, but then God created something new. God gave a gift, and it was Jerusalem, the city of David, Zion. It became a holy place, and it remains that today. And if we know so well from reading the news and hearing about everything that happens in Jerusalem, we know that it is not a perfect place. It's a place of promise and hope, but it is also a place of violence and bloodshed. This church here where we sit and worship in this sanctuary, in this holy place, this church, we are not perfect as well. But at the same time, it is still a place of promise a place of hope. It's a place where we grumble with each other and occasionally get distracted by the non-essentials. But it is also a place where we come together and fumble through and somehow impact people's lives with the grace of God. So no place this side of God's realm is perfect. And perhaps that is the lesson that the religious can teach the spiritual, that imperfection can be beautiful too. We are so blessed here in this holy place. Sometimes during the week I come and sit in these pews and I think about all the people who have sat here for the last 150 years. I think about all the songs that have been sung here I try to listen for all the words of scripture that have been voiced and all the prayers that have been lifted up. And I'm grateful, so grateful, for the way that God has kept us faithful and all the faithful people on whose shoulders we stand. And I am confident, by God's grace, that this holy place will be a vital witness to our community for the next generation. Because I am convinced 
through the reading of the scriptures, how God gave the people Jerusalem. I'm convinced that God cares about church. And God cares about what we do here today. So let us make sure that this place is a Zion that does those two things. Let's make sure that this sanctuary, this church, is a Zion that helps to connect people to God. For we need our souls to be nourished, and we need to be fed by God. Let this be a place where people can come and truly worship God in spirit and in truth, singing old songs and new songs, praying together, celebrating communion together, hearing God speak to us through the living word. Let this space be a holy place, holy and sacred. So that means we have to be free ourselves from the abuses of petty arguments and old resentments. But secondly, let this Zion be a place that connects people with each other. For it is in community, however imperfect that community is. It is through community that we get to practice forgiveness and we get to experience what it means to have God's grace in our lives. So this needs to be a place where we can sing and dance and pray and cry and plead out to God for help. This is a place where we can forgive those who have mistreated us. This is a place where we can wrestle with our doubts. This is a place where we can celebrate and wonder about all that is good and true and right. So, whether you are spiritual but not religious, or perhaps you're religious and not spiritual, or maybe you're even spiritual and religious, may you find your Zion. And wherever you find your Zion, your holy place, may that be a place that helps you to celebrate and give thanks to God for all of God's blessings in your life and helps you to learn and connect with each other. So this morning, let us celebrate all the holy places in our lives.